You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Thanks, Anna. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you so much for... uh, Already just the testimonies that's been given today that just, God, we're reminded that you're alive and you're still actively moving in the hearts of people, uh, not just here, but all over the world. And we do just ask right now that as we open the scriptures and we dive into this, that um, you would speak through it. We know that your word is active and it's living, but Holy Spirit, we need you to illuminate it um, so that this goes from just being some sort of a talk or a lecture to Um, truly being something that changes our lives from the inside out. And we pray that that's what will happen. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. So it was December 3rd, 1990. I was in Miss Reddick's second grade class. And my mom kept me and my brother home from school that day because an earthquake was supposed to level the town of New Madrid, along with all the surrounding communities. Some of you may remember that. Um, now, if you were alive during this period, you may remember, uh, at least those around me in my circle, uh, our family and friends, we were like putting all of our dishes in like different containers. We were like, you know, uh, bolting things to the wall so they didn't fall over. Um, we were running these like duck and cover drills. Remember that teacher would be like, duck and cover, and you get under your like desk and get into a little ball. And we were just preparing, right, for this massive earthquake that was estimated to kill thousands of people. Now, on uh, December 3rd, in the little sleepy town of, of New Madrid, right, there's usually like 6,000 people there, but on this day, there were 200 news organizations that were present, 30 satellite trucks, thrill seekers selling earthquake t-shirts, and then street preachers who were standing on the corners warning people that the end of times was near. Um, keep in mind, like again, this was an earthquake. If you remember on the news, they were saying like it was supposed to level the Memphis bridges, like lay to waste pretty much everything within distance of New Madrid. And yet December came, December 3rd came and it went right. And there were no earthquakes. There were no tremors. And therefore in an interview, actually in 1990, uh, with the United Press, a Northwestern university geologist referred to the day as the greatest non-event that never happened. The greatest not event that never happened. The point of me sharing that as we look back on that day in history is I want you to think about this. Though the physical landscape in our country uh, did not change as a result of this earthquake, the spiritual ground beneath our feet since then has shifted and moved significantly. And what I mean by that is sociologists now say that we are living in a post-Christian society. 
a nation that spiritually speaking, right, we have experienced a three major shifts or three major moves. And I'll run through these very quickly. The first major shift that we've experienced as Christians in America is we have gone from the majority to the minority. Christianity is actually exploding all over the world, but it's in decline in America. In fact, 4,000 churches shut their doors every year, 4,000. According to Barner Research and the most extensive survey ever done on spirituality, they found that in the year 2000, 45% of Americans qualified as practicing Christians, but now only one in four Americans qualify as practicing Christians. And so if you look on the screen, you can see this. Um, over the last 20 years, there's been a steady decline um, from 45% to 25% of people who, again, identify as practicing Christians. That literally means the number of committed Christians has been cut in half since 2000. Needless to say, as followers of Jesus, we're becoming an endangered species. And they're really kind of a shocking turn of event. Christians have become the James Dean of our day. Uh, we're considered to be the rebels, uh, kind, of, kind of the outliers, those who live on the fringes of society. Secondly, another big shift that we've seen kind of in the ground beneath our feet is Christians have moved from a place of honor to a place of shame. Now, some of this uh, we've brought on ourselves by just acting like fools. Um, but we have gone from, you know, there being a time, even as late as the 90s, where Christians, by and large, were respected to where now, whether it's on a college campus or at work or in your neighborhood or in school, we're considered not only to be weird, but dangerous. And because of that, we're now experiencing a third and final shift that I believe we're living in literally right now. And that is a shift from widespread tolerance to rising hostility. What I mean by that is more than ever as Christians in America, we are experiencing persecution, not a physical persecution yet, but we're experiencing persecution relationally, emotionally, and even vocationally. I think about the Washington football coach, Joe Kennedy, who was recently suspended because he prayed on the field with his football team after a game. Or I think about Manifa Sterling, who is a U.S. Marine, who was recently court-martialed because she pasted a Bible verse on her desk. Now, these are examples of the increasing number of American Christians who are experiencing a rise in hostility simply because of their faith. And as a result, if you're practicing the way of Jesus, which my guess is a lot of you are who are in the room today, it feels more and more in America like we're swimming upstream in a culture that's constantly trying to push us down and shut us up. One of the ways that I think about our culture is a canoe trip I went on with my wife. I've shared this before. This is before we were married and we went in this canoe trip, and it was me and her. I'd never been canoeing before. We were with a guy named Jeff who couldn't even swim, and we got caught in a current, and we just slammed right into this big oak tree that had fallen over because of a storm weeks prior. And when we hit this tree, right, I mean, it just flipped our canoe. I went into water. I'm hitting these branches. I come up. My wife's, like, hanging on to a limb as the current's trying to pull her down. I look at Jeff, who can't swim, but fortunately, he had a life jacket on, and I just see him, and he's just being taken hostage by the current like this all the way down. He's going this way, our canoe with my glasses and my cell phone and all this other stuff that apparently you're not supposed to take, by the way, in the canoe, that's all just like gone down the river. And it was a really scary situation that I think honestly represents a little bit of the kind of culture that we're swimming in as Christians, a culture that again seems to be pulling us downstream and away from Jesus. And the temptation, whether you realize it or not, in this kind of culture is one of two things. It's either syncretism or it's separatism. It's one of those two things. Separatism, what I mean by that is, 
in a culture like this, we, we might be tempted to say, okay, I just want to get out of the water, so to speak, get out of the culture, and I just want to kind of like go live in a cave or out in the woods somewhere, or maybe like climb up in a tree and make my own jam and just like wait for the rapture to occur or something like that. Like that's a temptation, just like get my own little holy huddle, right? So I don't get the sinnies or whatever else. But for the majority of us, I, I don't think like that's the culture or that's the temptation. I think more than separatism being our temptation, it's syncretism. And what is syncretism? Basically, it's just this. It's not that I want to get out of the world. It's that I become like the world. It's that I slowly but surely just say, you know what? If you can't beat them, just join them, right? Like, I'm just going to try to become as cool as I can or as relevant as I can or at least, like, appear normal in the eyes of the world. And in the process of that, we just become like those that we say we're trying to reach. And because God knows that this is a temptation for all of us, he gives us the book of 1 Peter, which we read earlier. And just to set the context for you, the book of 1 Peter is written by, anybody know? Peter, Peter, very good, yeah. And so it's written by Peter, he's in Rome, and he's writing to these uh, first century kind of followers of Jesus who are in Asia Minor. They're experiencing immense persecution because they follow Jesus. And the whole point of his book is basically to encourage them to not give up to encourage them not to pull back out of the world and not become like the world, but to continue to live as uh, as witnesses of Jesus in the world, even in the midst of their great persecution, their pain, and their suffering. And here's how he starts. Look back with me in the scriptures. In verse 11, he says to these followers of Jesus, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Now let me stop right there because this is very important. Notice that before Peter says, this is what you need to do, he says, this is who you are. I don't know if you realize this, but whoever you think you are shapes how you live. And because Peter knows that is true, he's like, let me remind you of your identity. If you are a Christian, you are a foreigner, you are an exile. In other words, this place is not your home. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're just passing through. Like Life is a vapor. It is a mist. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. And you are going to spend eternity in a real place called heaven in the kingdom of God. He says, so therefore, he says, make sure that you keep this on your mind. Remember this reality. Remember that you are not just someone who's going to stay here forever. Don't settle. Don't just live within your comfort zone. Focus on the future. You are a foreigner. You are an exile. And therefore, look what he says in verse 11, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Now, let me talk for a second about the soul. Because despite what you have been told, your soul is not the cartoonish part of you that floats to heaven when you die. Um, I know that's what we all think, but that's not what the soul is. When you think of the soul, which Peter mentions right here, think of it like a computer program that is actually meant, it's actually designed by God for the purpose of connecting, integrating, and running your entire operating system, your mind, your body, and your emotions. Your soul holds all of that together. And according to Peter and Jesus and the writers of the New Testament, when you sin, what happens? He says that you literally wage war against your soul, meaning that when you sin, here's what happens. Rather, and we just, we just heard some of this within our testimonies. When you sin, rather than being held together, happy and whole, your life begins to fall apart. Your life literally from the inside out will begin to unravel. Now, this looks different for everybody. Some, this means overwhelming anxiety. 
Some it may mean like deep, dark depression. They cannot shake no matter what. For others, it may be like this uncontrollable anger. Um, it could be overworking to where you like burn basically every other relationship around you. It could mean basically this insatiable thirst for more. So you always got to get, 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 but you can never get content. So you're constantly unhappy and you're empty and you're miserable. Like it can mean a lot of different things, but on one level or another, when we choose to sin, literally the computer system gets a virus, so to speak. Like our soul will begin to crack. It will begin to hemorrhage and leak. And as a result, you will miss out on the life that you are longing to experience. And because Peter knows this is true, he says to Christians, listen, hey, you want to make your life count? You want to make a difference in the world? It doesn't start out there. It starts in here. Like that's his first point. It starts with you choosing to live a holy life because holiness ultimately leads to wholeness. It leads to a life that is full and complete and as it should be. Put another way, what Peter is saying here in verse 11 is if you want to make a difference in the culture, if you want to take the country back for God, so to speak, then you do so by choosing to live a life of no compromise. You choose to do the right thing even when no one else around you is watching or pat you on the back for doing so. And therefore, with that in mind, I just want to stop and ask this question. Is there anywhere right now where you sense there's an area of compromise in your own life? I know I'm in front of a crowd, but I'm in front of a crowd of individuals. And so I just want to ask you, like, is the Holy Spirit right now, I'm not trying to convict anybody or manipulate anybody. That's not my job. I can't do that. But I just want to give some space for the Holy Spirit. Like right now, like, is there anything that the Spirit's highlighting that you know is wrong. Maybe it's around sexuality. Maybe it's around money. Maybe it's around the abuse of alcohol or prescription medication. Maybe it's lying or gossiping. It's holding a grudge. Somebody's hurt you and you refuse to forgive. Maybe it's vanity or envy. It's coarse humor. Some of us, we tell jokes to our buddies that we would never tell if Jesus was like physically right there with us. Maybe it's robbing God and tithes and offerings. It's materialism or it's greed. I, I don't know what it may be, but here's what I know. I've been a pastor for 13 years now, which is crazy for me to think about that. Like I finally come to the point where I can't blame my bad decisions on, hey, I'm just new, right? The new guy. I've been a pastor for 13 years, and here's what I found out. Nobody wakes up one morning and says, you know what? It's a beautiful day. I think I'm just going to blow my life up. Never happens that way. It's always a slow disintegration. It happens one small compromise at a time. It starts with always with these seemingly small, insignificant decisions that over a time have a massive earthquake-type devastation in the life of the person who's committing the sin. And so I just want to encourage you with the love in my heart, listen, like we're all sinners in the room. Let's just own that. We are. But if there's any habitual sin in your life that's kind of been left unchecked or unabated, I want to encourage you, like, take Jesus' word seriously and seek to kill the sin before it kills you. And if there's a gray area where you're like, yeah, I don't really know. Like, is that a sin? Is it not a sin? Like, is that the spirit convicting me? Or is that just like my legalistic background or my mom who was always in my ear? Or like, rather than playing the mental gymnastics... Let me encourage you just to ask this question. Jesus, if you were me, would you do this? And if the answer is no, then don't do it. And if the answer is like, well, I don't really know. Like Jesus didn't have Netflix, so I don't know if he'd watch that show. I don't know if he'd watch Yellowstone or whatever else. Like, I don't know. Like, he didn't have a girlfriend, so I don't know, like, what the boundaries would be. 
If you don't know, then always err on the side of holiness. Peter says in verse 11, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. This is the way we have an impact in our culture. It starts with you, but then notice in verse 12, you don't just focus on your private life. Now you also focus on your public life as well. Look with me in verse 12. We go from the private to the public. He says, live such good lives among the pagans. Notice, stop for a moment. He doesn't just say live such good lives in the privacy of your own home. You do that. But it doesn't stop there. You don't just live such good lives when you're around your Christian friends, but rather live such good lives among the pagans, which means you should actually be living among pagans, people who are far from God, who don't follow Jesus. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds, not your Facebook post, not they may hear your pastor's sermons. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that Peter is just quoting Jesus here. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 quickly. Matthew chapter 5. And I want to end here today. And by end here, I don't mean I'm going to be done in the next three minutes, so don't get excited. So Matthew chapter 5. Verse 13 through 16, Jesus, in his most famous sermon ever preached, he's showing us what it means to live as disciples in a pagan society, in a culture much like the one we're living in right now. And here's what he says. What do we do? How do we live in a godless culture? Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bow. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. And here it is. So that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. Notice Jesus does not say you have salt or you have light. He says you are salt. And you are light. This is true about you. This is your identity. This is who you are. You are, if you're a disciple of Jesus, a Christian, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, the question is, what in the world does that mean? And without overcomplicating, I think when it comes to salt, there's at least two things that it means because salt serves at least two purposes. And the first thing I would say is, is salt gives flavor. Like salt seasons, it makes food more enjoyable. Um, I have a pellet grill at my house, and now that the, the spring is here, I will be using my pellet grill more and more and more. We'll probably use it three to four times a week. I'll put all kinds of things on there, vegetables, right, chicken, hamburgers, steaks, pork chops, ribs, fish. I mean, you name it. We'll put pretty much everything on there. And you know what? One ingredient I will put on everything that goes on my grill, I'll use salt, And why will I use salt? Because it enhances the flavor of something. Like a little bit of salt goes a long way. It makes not so good food tolerable, and it makes good food great. It brings out what something is meant to taste like. Like, Jerry, why does that matter? Because Jesus says that's what your life is meant to be like in a lost pagan culture. In other words, you are meant, think about this, for those of you who claim to be Christians today. You are to live in such a way that your very presence flavors the world around you. Like, when you go into the gym, when you go into your school, when you go into your workplace, your very presence is meant to season those around you with hope, 
and peace and joy and love that only the real Jesus can bring. That's what salt does. Salt also, we know, preserves. In Jesus' day, there wasn't freezers, there wasn't refrigerators. So if you wanted to preserve something, you wanted to protect the goodness of food and keep it from decaying or becoming corrupted, you had to cover it in salt. And so what does Jesus mean here? When he says you're to be salt of the earth, he's saying not only are you called to flavor the world, you're called to protect and preserve what is good in the world. And so what that means for us, church, is listen, we are to work against corruption. Like when you see corruption, we don't just say, oh, I'm going to pray about that. Yeah, you pray about it, but we do something about it. We work against the corruption of racism or legalism or marital breakdown or abuse or addiction or poverty or anything else that is suffering the decaying effects of sin. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth. Next, Jesus says we're to be the light of the world. So again, he doesn't just say, hey, you have light. He says, you are light. Like how in the world is that, how, how in the world is that possible? How can I be light? Well, because in John chapter eight, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And if you have trusted in Jesus, he has placed his very Holy Spirit in you so that you can now be the light to the world. And what does light do? Again, I'm not trying to overcomplicate things. What does light do? It scatters darkness. It pushes away the shadows. Right? That's what it means to be light, is to live and speak in such a way that we shine light so that rather than people slipping into destruction, they can find their way to God and therefore the happiness and the wholeness that they are longing for. With that in mind, I just want to say something to you today. I don't know like what you feel about yourself. Maybe some of you, like you, you sit in shame because you're like, man, my life's so insignificant. It's so meaningless. Like I don't get to stand on a stage and speak to other people and like nobody sees my life. Man, I'm just a stay-at-home mom or I just do the same thing on the factory line all day long or whatever else. Like, listen, like that is a lie. Like if you are a disciple of Jesus, your life matters more than you could ever imagine. You are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Like, think about what that means. That means that you are, by design, like God, the reason you have breath in your lungs right now is to flavor the world, to preserve what is good, and to push back the darkness so people can experience the life they are longing for in Jesus. That's why you're here. And these are the blessings that God speaks over your life. But then notice before we end, not only does Jesus give us two blessings, but he also gives us two warnings. And I think we need to hear this before we end today. In verse 13, here's the first warning. Jesus says, you are salt, therefore don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose your ability to flavor the world, to make it a better place and to preserve what is good. Because notice, according to Jesus, what happens if you lose your saltiness? He says, you're no longer useful. And if you're not useful, here's the warning, you will be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So there's that. I think in a lot of that, if we want to really take the scripture seriously, and you don't have to, you could just read it as a textbook, but I believe these are the very words of God. So like, if we're going to take these seriously, we should probably stop and ask the question, well, how do you lose your saltiness? And I think in short, we lose our saltiness when we fail to live distinct lives from the world around us. We lose our saltiness when rather than adding flavor to the world, we just become like everyone else in the world. When you look at our relationships, when you look at our sexuality, when you look at how we handle our money, when you look at how we treat other people who aren't like us, we basically look more like the culture than we do like Christ. That's how you lose your saltiness. And according to Jesus, when this happens, right, when we become a useless Christian, 
right? When we no longer serve our purpose as a disciple of Jesus, it says you're thrown out and trampled underfoot, or as Eugene Peterson puts it in his translation, you're thrown into the garbage. You do with that whatever you want, but the point is your life becomes a waste. doesn't matter what you do, come to the end of your life, box it up, put a big sign on the back of it that says, wasted. So the warning is don't lose your saltiness. And then next, it says, don't hide your light. You're the light of the world, he says, so don't put your light under the bow. So there's two warnings. The first warning about saltiness is basically make sure you don't become like the world. The second warning is don't hide from the world. Like, don't separate yourself from the world. And so this warning about not hiding your light, who is this for? This is for those of us in here who want to keep our faith private. Just show up on Sunday, throw a little money in the offering basket, sing a couple songs, take some notes during the sermon, but then put my head down, keep my mouth shut, and throughout the week have my own little personal relationship with Jesus where basically I hide from others what I say is the most important thing about my life. And I would say this is a temptation for all of us, even for me. I mean, I've had times, I can tell you right now, where I've been like, you know, Bible open or something, or I'm about to pray before a meal, and I'm like, who's looking, right? It's a temptation. But according to Jesus, again, we are called to live our faith out loud, to be salt, to be light, so that verse 16, quote, others may see your good deeds. Again, guys, listen, not your bumper stickers, not our cheesy Christian t-shirts, nothing against cheesy Christian t-shirts, if that's your thing. But at the end of the day, it is our good deeds that people are to see and glorify God in heaven. Simply put, I know this is a series that we've entitled Preaching the Gospel, but please hear this. This is kind of the big point for the sermon today. The goal of a Christian is not just to preach good news to people. The goal is to be a good news people. The goal is not just to preach good news at people. The goal is for us to become a good news people to speak and to live in such a way that more and more people are experiencing the good news of Jesus and what his kingdom is like. I was thinking about that this past week, looking at a movie trailer with my son. And what does a good movie trailer do? If you watch a good movie trailer, what's it make you want to do? Go watch to see the whole movie. I want, I want to go all in. Guys, we're to be like little kingdom movie trailers where people look at your life and say, I want more of that. I want more of that. Jesus, I want to experience the entire kingdom. We're to live in such a way that people begin to see, you know what, I'm tired of worshiping creation. It's done nothing for me. And I'm going to go from worshiping creation to worshiping the creator God who has to be the source of all that is good and beautiful and true. And I think if we're going to live lives like this, it means at least five things. And I'll go through these very quickly so don't get nervous. Like five points, geez, where are we at in the sermon? Um, Tim Keller wrote a, a, an e-book. I think it's his best work he's ever done. He's a, a, a former pastor, Presbyterian uh, pastor in New York. And he wrote an e-book called How to Reach the West Again. And in it, he identifies these five things that he said was true about the early church that allowed them to uh, basically attract the pagan culture in the midst of persecution. Five things that must also be true of us as well. And here's what he said. All church historians agree when they look at the early church that these are the five things that mark them. One, they were the most diverse community the world had ever seen. In other words, it was a community where everyone was treated equal, no matter their color, their culture, their personality, background, education, or socioeconomic status. They all unified around Jesus Christ. Secondly, they were highly committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized. Not only did they care for those within their own church and their own tribe, they were radically generous in how they shared for the last, the least, and lost of society. Christians were actually the ones who started hospitals, by the way, and many of the schools 
They were famous for how they loved the widows, the orphans, the refugees, the poor, and people who could not do anything for them. Third, they were known for enemy love. If you attacked them, they would forgive you. If you tried to burn their bridges, they would just try to build them back. Fourth, they were pro-life in a very holistic way. And what that means is they weren't just, this wasn't a political stance, it was a practical stance. And so, of course, yes, they were against abortion, but they also actually took in the babies that were thrown out. They believed all human life was precious, and therefore they would do whatever they could. They would put skin in the game to nurture, protect, and care for the children that nobody else wanted. Lastly, they had a sexual counterculture in the Roman world. Um, you may not know this, but, but like basically sex, here was the basic view of, of, of sexuality in the Roman culture. It was play for grown-ups. It was for like basically just a physical release, physical gratification only. And so um, you could basically have sex with whoever you wanted. And if you were a man, um, this was especially true for you. Um, in Roman culture, it was totally acceptable for a man to have sex with anybody they wanted anytime they wanted. Woman, man, kids, it didn't matter. Totally acceptable. Christians were the very first ones to come around and say, that's not right. Like, that's not the way sex was meant to be. Like, sex is like this sacred fire. We've talked about this before, that if it's outside of the right boundaries, it'll burn a life up. But if it's in the right boundary, think about a fireplace, right? Like, if the sacred fire, sex is in the right boundary, it warms a life up. It's as it should be. And that boundary, by God's design, sex, he says, is meant to exist between one woman and one man for one life. And here's what sex basically is. Sex is basically... It's like a sacrament where you are saying to the other, this is a a sign, this is a physical reminder that I am now doing something with you that I've already committed to do for you with my entire life. I'm giving you everything. I'm not holding back and I'm making a decision right now. I'm choosing to say, I am going to be to you as I should be, even if you're not as you should be to me. That's what sex was designed to be. And Christians were the one who didn't lower the view of sexuality. They just raised it tremendously. They said it's way better, it's way bigger, it's way more important than you think that it is. And because of this truth, because of their good works, when you look at that list, this attracted pagans to Christians. And it allowed them, seriously, to look and say, something's different about you, and begin to glorify their God over the gods that were no longer serving them. Now look at that list for a second. I want to leave that on the screen, because here's the truth. I don't know about you, but for me, that's been pretty convicting this week. Like when I just, not just think about our church, but when I think about my own life. Like when I, when I first read Keller's book, I saw that and I was like, I think I'm killing it. Anybody else read that list and feel like, check, 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 next point, pastor, let's go. But if I can be honest, man, like I'm looking at this list and I'm like, I asked the spirit this week, I was like, is there anything in here you want me to, to receive? And honestly, like guys, I'm just being... I think there's a discrepancy even in my heart and what I say I believe and how I actually live throughout the week. I think I'm all about diversity, right, number one. But look at my missional community and look at my friends and the people I run with, and they all pretty much look just like me. I'm really good at loving people different than me for like an hour on a Sunday in the hallway when I see you or whatever else. Am I willing to actually do life with people who are different than me. Highly committed to caring for the poor and the marginalized, I'm like, that's got to be me, right? I mean, literally tonight in our house, in our little house around our table with our missional community, we will have 15 Ethiopian Muslims in our home. And I look, I'm like, man, yeah, I care for the poor and the marginalized, but here's the truth. Like one thing the Spirit convicted me of, and I just want to confess it to y'all, and you can pray for me about this, but there's no doubt in my mind that I have the sin of partiality in my own heart where I am tempted 
to give more attention to the rich than the poor. Especially as a pastor, like one of my big temptations is I can very much be like, okay, whoever the winners are in society, like that's the people I hope we can attract because if winners come here, then that means I'm a winner. That's evil. And it's something like I've had to repent of this past week. Enemy love, like, man, I can be quick to write you off. Like, I'm not going to like say bad things about you behind your back, or, but I can give you a cold shoulder. In my mind, I can, be like, I can get drunk on resentment. Pro-life, I've always voted pro-life, but I'll be honest, I really don't even think about foster care and all these babies and all these kids that other people don't even want. Don't lose much sleep over them. Sexual purity, I have never physically cheated on my wife, but I have cheated on her in my heart more times than I can count. And I don't share any of that to like beat myself up. I just think if we will be honest in here today, we all have room for growth in these areas. I love how Tim Keller points out on this list, if you look, he's like, the first two sound uh, liberal, the last two sound Republican, and the middle one doesn't even sound American. (laughs) It's like nobody loves their enemies, not on either side. And I think like, Man, that, there's so much truth in that. Like, you look at that list, like, there is no... Christianity is the most radical way to live on the planet. There's no other religion that teaches something like this. Like, the way of Jesus in 2022 is more counterculture than ever. And therefore, listen, guys, and we're going to talk about this more next week in our final uh, sermon on this, uh, in this series. If you choose to live this way, it will be offensive to some. It will. I hate to break it to you. It will be offensive to some, but it will also be incredibly attractive to others. From my experience, and especially as people get older, like here's what's going to happen. We're going to realize there's a crack in secularism. That, that the promises that our culture is telling you, like this is what you need to be happy, they're empty. And you're going to have to run after it. Some of you are going to have to run after it. And then you're going to realize that was an empty promise. It was a lie. And as more and more people do that, more and more people are going to look for hope. They're going to look for answers. And they're going to look to people who are choosing to live this way. And they are going to be attracted and drawn to Jesus and the way of the kingdom. And this is what we see in the early church. The early church exploded with growth. Whether you're a Christian or not, you've got to do something about that. It exploded with growth despite heavy, 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 heavy persecution. And the early church, here's what's amazing. They were basically underground because Christianity was illegal. How does, how does a movement grow like that? They didn't have a killer band. They didn't have kids ministry. No good programs. They didn't have any new windows behind them and a brick wall. No cool building. What attracted pagans to Christians, get this. What attracted pagans to Christians was not their Christian worship service. It was their Christians. They were so generous and so pure and they loved so well and they were so resilient and tough and joyful in the midst of suffering because their life was so beautiful, because it looked so much different. People began to look at them, say something's different about you and begin to glorify God as a result. And that's the goal, by the way. The goal of our church is not for people to leave and say, isn't the crossing amazing? The goal is for us to live in such a way that before they even come here, they say God is amazing because they look at how we're living our lives. Like that's the goal of all of this. 
And therefore, and a lot of everything we just said, remember this is a practicing series. We do these two times a year where we take a teaching from the life of Jesus. We teach on it here and then work on it throughout the week. We kind of put it into practice. And, and this week, here's what I want to encourage you to do. If you've not already done this, make a list of the names of people who are around you who do not follow Jesus. Think about it. We're to live this way among the pagans. Some of you, though, aren't even around pagans, those who are considered to not be followers of Jesus. So make a list of those who are not followers of Jesus. And then here's what I want to encourage you to do. Like, just honestly pray that God will give you the wisdom and the strength and the love to be able to live in such a way around them that your life begins to demand a gospel explanation. So they might say, yeah, you're weird. I don't really understand you, but there's something different about you. Ask God to help you, empower you to live that way where people will look at your life and see there's something different about you and the person next to you who doesn't even claim to have the spirit of God in them. And if you can't think of any names, don't shame yourself or beat yourself up. Um, but I would encourage you to ask God to show you how in the words of Jesus in John 17 that you can begin to live in the world without being of the world. Ask Jesus to show you how you can live as a sent one, as a missionary to a world that is in desperate need of good news. You know, I think of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, um, where Jesus says that when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will receive power and you will live as witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. When you think about what it means to live as a witness, I think oftentimes we think of like a salesperson. But really, to be a witness just means that you tell the people about what you've experienced. It was like these beautiful baptisms we had today. Where you just say, like, hey, here's just my experience. I've just witnessed this. This is what Jesus has done for me. That's what it means to be a witness. To be a witness is not a salesperson. I remember when I was in college, I, I read an article, uh, or there was an ad in the paper that said, make $10,000 a month by selling knives door to door. I was like, I'm in. So I went and got trained, became a, a salesperson for Cutco. Anybody in here have Cutco knives? Anybody? Okay, nobody. Wow. It's uh, because I didn't come to your house. And so... But I'd sell knives door to door, and uh, it was great for a while. I was like the number one, you know, salesman in Arkansas. But then I just got tired of pushing it because I was like, I'm going to these people's homes, and I'm trying to sell them on something they really don't even need, and I don't even use. And isn't that the way it works with the gospel? Sometimes it feels like that. I'm trying to push something on somebody they don't even need, and I don't even use. We're not salespeople. We're not Jesus's PR managers. We're not politicians. We're witnesses. We're simply called to testify with our life and our lips about what Jesus has done for me. Your job, by the way, and I'll say this will be done, when you go and you share the gospel with your life and your lips, your job is not to seal the deal. Your job is not to save anybody. Your job is not even to change anyone's mind. You're just called to be faithful to who you are to embrace your identity, that Jesus said, you are salt, you are light, so that those who are lost and without hope can begin to taste and see how good God really is. With that in mind, as we end today, we'll end like we always do with taking communion. And those who are preparing communion, you can come forward, begin to prepare those elements. And without getting too distracted, the point of communion, for those of you who are maybe are new and this is a, 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 something that you're not familiar with, Communion is a time for us as Christians where we come together and we taste and see how good God really is. It's a time for us to practically take in the gospel, the good news about Jesus, so that we can live as good news people out beyond these walls. 
And so if you're interested, if you're a Christian, this is not a table that's closed to you. Even if you're not a member of our church, you can participate in this. If you're not, you don't, if you don't feel comfortable coming forward and grabbing communion here, we've got little disposable cups in the back with the juice and the cracker. But here's what this means. Again, for those of you, who maybe this is, this is new to you. This is something Jesus started. The crossing didn't start this. Jesus started this thousands of years ago. But he says the bread is meant to represent his perfect life that he lived on our behalf. None of us have been perfect. None of us have been perfect at living at salt and light. I just shared with you, I confess like five sins to you just while I go, right? It's like we all come in here today and we can all be like, yeah, there's areas where I have fallen short of the glory of God. And when we take the bread, remember that Jesus didn't fall short. He lived a perfect sinless life that we could never live. And then whenever it's dipped into the juice, it's a reminder that Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins so that now, no matter what you've done or have not done, you can sit perfect in the eyes of God because of what Christ has accomplished for you. And so we need that reminder every week. And so if you're interested after I pray, you can come and just file through here, take communion, go back to your seat, or you can grab the cup. If you're here and you're not a Christian, though, maybe you heard a testimony today of someone who came forward, or uh, maybe you heard something I said. I just want you to know, whether you're online or here in person, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, in some ways, I'm more happy you're here than even my Christian family. And so I hope you felt welcome. I hope you didn't feel judged uh, by me. Um, but listen, if you want to keep coming, keep coming. But if you have questions and you want to wrestle through those honestly and openly in a non-condemning way, I'll be happy to talk to you. I know others would be as well. And we'd be incredibly thrilled to help you with the next steps of knowing what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Um, with that, let's stand together as the band comes forward. I'll pray for us, uh, and then you can come forward and take of communion if you would like to do that. We'll sing one final song, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I do thank you so much again for those who are here, those who are watching online or listening maybe to this later, and I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would take the, the words from the scripture and that you would drive them into our hearts, that you would help us to live as salt and light, just to embrace who we really are. And to trust that the power is not found in us, the power is in the gospel. The power is found in you, Jesus, and through your spirit. I pray we would just be obedient. I pray that we would live in such a way as a church that even if people think we're weird, that's okay, but that they still would be able to see our good works and say something's different about them. I pray that this would be a church that lives in such a, good, in such a way that if we cease to exist, this community and world would miss us. And I pray for those maybe who don't have a relationship with you, that they would just right now just know that you love them, that they would feel your love, and that they would turn from trusting in themselves or trusting in the things of the world that will die or break or fade away to trusting in you. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen.